It's Tuesday, September 15th. I'm Stephen Fee, and this is The Pen Pod, a podcast from Pen America. On today's edition, Homeland Elegies, Pulitzer winner Ayad Akhtar's new novel is out today, and he joins us for a conversation about where we are as a country, the closeness of fiction and nonfiction, and the challenges ahead as he takes on the presidency of Pen America this December. Then, the storm in Belarus. Opposition again took to the streets this weekend, and our colleagues at Penn Belarus face arrests. Our Polina Sadovskaya updates us on the latest. I'm Stephen Fee. All that coming up on the Penn Pod. Author and Pulitzer-winning playwright Ayad Akhtar is no stranger to Penn America. He's served on our board of trustees since 2015, and we just announced that in December he'll take the reins from Jennifer Egan as our next president. His second novel, Homeland Elegies, publishes today and tonight in a special Pen Out Loud event. He joins Ben Rhodes for a conversation about the new book, but we at the Pen Pod get to ask him questions first. Ayad Akhtar, welcome to the Pen Pod. Thanks, Stephen. So let's talk this book, Homeland Elegies. You know, it's it's a beautiful work. It, it contends with, in so many ways, Americanness um, at at a really discordant American moment. Um, yeah. You know, for for this country and, and the world. How did how did this book come together for you? You know, I, it was not really a planned thing. I I had been in, I was at the Academy American Academy in Rome, and and I was hope, hoping to write something, and I had a kind of vague idea of what I wanted to write about, but. I found myself immersed in uh, the classical tradition. I was reading a lot of Roman history, and I was also kind of dealing with the aftermath of my mom's passing and Donald Trump's election, and my father was showing signs of decline. And I, I just, there was something about my perspective on uh, what was happening in America, not being in America, that summoned, I don't know, a kind of unique combination in me of outrage and eloquence. And I, I can't really account for it. You know, I woke up one morning after reading a poem by Leopardi in which he was addressing the Italian nation, you know, it was a poem from the you know, early 1800s, but it was called To Italy. And I remember as I was reading the poem that the day prior, I was thinking, would it be possible to summon some sort of a voice that could address my fellow Americans? And I woke up the next morning and the first sentences of the overture were already sort of coming out of me. And, and that was really the, that was the goal, was to sort of try to pen a portrait of our nation in a time of its sort of decay. Yeah, I mean, it's it, the outrage and eloquence. I, I, I like that. I mean, the, the, the book the book does those things. I mean, it, it really extends, I think, a lot of the themes we've seen in your other work, um, you know, through this fictional Ayad character in the book, um, you know, themes like not otherness. Every, not everyone is convinced that it's, that it's fiction. <laughs> yeah, I want to I ask you about that because I'm sure it's it's interesting to, to contend with. But, you know, I mean, these, these themes of otherness, uh, the immigrant experience, uh, Muslims in America, late capitalism, you know, all these issues, you know, how, how did they how did they shape your fictional Ayad in, in Homeland Elegies? Well, here's the thing, you know, the argument of the book is pretty simple and it's out it's outlined in those early that early those early pages that came to me almost in a kind of just, you know, a flash of unprecedented inspiration in my life. I um, the argument is that yes, it's hard to be Muslim in America. It's hard to be Muslim, and it has been hard to be Muslim in America since nine eleven. But even my difficulties and the difficulties of my family uh, dealing with that condition post nine eleven did not prepare me to see what had truly happened to our nation. 
that even my struggles with, you know, outsiderness or belonging or whatever were not sufficient to make me see the picture of the decay that our country had fallen into. And it wasn't until I started to see the bigger picture that was much larger than the question of identity, that was the question of our collective collapse, that I began to understand what had actually happened to this country and how it had changed so fundamentally from the country that my parents came to a half century ago and which I, was the only country I've ever known. So in a way, it's, 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 it's funny because I, I've been getting, of, of course, so many responses related to the questions of Muslim identity and, and, and all of that in the book. But ultimately, the book is really about America. It's not really even about Muslim America. Yeah, yeah, and 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 the book tracks obviously nine eleven and the and the years that that followed, but you know even the fictional Aeon's sort of mother and father characters and the identities that they reckon with. You know, it's it's it is more complex than just sort of a a, a, a view from post nine eleven America, and it, and it's you know it, it it definitely has those elements, but it's also an intimately personal story. I mean, there's a there's a there's a there's a there's a character here Aeon that really is struggling among all of these factors. Yeah, and 9-11 does figure prominently because I think 9-11 figures prominently in, in how the world has taken the course that it has. You know, I think that, that the American response to the trauma of 9-11, the sort of dysfunctional, uh, I would call it even murderous response of, uh, of, of our inability really to deal with the trauma of 9-11 is at root part of the problem. It's part of what broke the world order in some fundamental way. And I think that the book does make a case that being Muslim somehow does give you not only a good perspective of outsiderness within the country, but it gives you a good perspective of what the consequences of American, the American mythos and American foreign policy has, has had outside of the country over the last half century as well. And that in order to understand what America has truly meant historically, for our time, for our civilization at this moment, that perhaps being Muslim is really, you know, maybe a privileged perspective to, to understand that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's, that, that comes through, I think, in a lot of, of elements in the text. I mean, you're, you're very clear in the, in the opening pages of the book though, that this is a work of fiction. Um, but you know, there is a character named Ayad that he was born in Staten Island and raised in Milwaukee. There are elements that hew closely to your story. And, and I guess the question is, you know, and maybe this is a lazy interviewer question, but you know, why hew so closely to a character that maybe has some superficial resemblance to you? Why, why not, you know, have him have a different name? You know, uh, first of all, I don't think it's a, it's certainly not the lazy version of that question because the, <laughs> I'm, getting, I'm getting the lazy version of that question every day. Um, I think that's a sophisticated version of that question. Um, Thank you. The, you know, I wasn't convinced that in my hands, a third person novel, a third person narrative or a clearly fictional narrator was going to be able that, that, that a fiction that had that kind of a structure was going to be able to get its arms or its language or its heart around the crazy reality that has become our reality in America in 2020, 2019, 2018, when I was writing this book. I wasn't convinced I could do that. I mean, I don't know that there's a lot of writers who would be able to do that, but I certainly was not one of them. And it felt to me that writing a novel about what, was, what had happened to our country was invariably going to read like satire. And what was the corrective to working against satire was to, peak, to push it toward memoir, to, to ensnare the reader in this game, really, this, this Trump lawyer, no, no pun intended, this tricking of the eye in 
terms of what's real and what's not real, of course, the, the narrative has many of the facts of my life, my name, uh, for, first and foremost, but also many of the biographical details, not all of them, but many of them, as well as my parents. And I'm, I am drawing substantially from my life. I mean, it's not like I'm concocted the whole thing. I mean, mo- most of it, if not almost all of it, is real. But it is deformed just enough to serve the purposes, not of expressing some personal truth on my part. I'm not interested in my personal truth. I'm interested in expressing some expansive vision of what's happened to our country. And in order to do that, of course, I had to offer up my own life. I had to offer up the, my parents' lives in order to do it in the way that I was that I was doing it. So, you know, again, finally, at the end of the day, it's a formal issue. How, how to create a form that feels new, that, that renews the novel, if you will, and that gate, secures access for a reader to a feeling of what it is like to be alive right now. And I think that that, that uh, dissolution of the boundary between truth and fiction is very much part of our consciousness. So that's the game the book is playing with the reader. And, and that's the game that reality increasingly seems to be playing with all of us. I mean, and, and, and I presume, you know, you finished this book well before the pandemic period that we're in, but that, that funhouse quality, that sort of, you know, trick of the eye. I mean, you know, do you think that people will, do you think that sense is heightened now that this book is coming out at this, you know, sort of just unbelievable moment? Will people read it differently than maybe how you had set out? You know, it's, it's interesting. I, I think to, it seems to me, and I could be wrong about this, and it might be arrogant to put it this way, and I don't mean it that way at all, but I think anybody who'd been paying close attention to what's been happening in this country in the last 40 years could see that really in the last 10, we have been sliding into the situation that we are in. And, and you know, I don't know that we could have predicted the particulars, but the right. dysfunction and the sort of the, the really the tatters that our republic is in that's not, you know, as the Chinese have a, a wonderful saying, an old proverb that in the house where the son kills the father, the causes do not lie between the morning and the evening of a single day. And it's mm. the same for our, for our situation. You know, and I think that the book was an attempt, you know, I'd been seeing a portrait of the nation for quite some time, a, a nation div- divided, riven between divides of rural and urban and heartland and the coasts and divides between race, divides between economic status and, and all of those things have genealogies. They're not something that just sort of came into being. And Trump did not create these problems. He has been very, very um, smart about taking advantage of those, those divides for political gain. But, but other than that, I mean, I think that, like I said, if you're paying, you've been paying any attention, you've been seeing this picture for quite some time. And I wanted to pen a portrait that would, that would display that picture, that would portray that picture. And I think that the pandemic... For many who maybe were were more preoccupied by other things, you know, the daily getting through your life, really, um, maybe maybe that that portrait of the country is much clearer to all of us because of the pandemic. Well, you know, and I want to just shift gears briefly because you know you're you're you've got this book here and you're telling this story of the country. And as you say, the genealogies of where we are, you know, that have been rooted for a long time. And and you're also assuming the presidency of PEN America to help, you know, shepherd us, honestly, you know, as, as we are at this really critical juncture, but also as, you know, we're heading into our hundredth year of, of sort of shaping and, and, and working alongside and, and, and perhaps providing some kind of space for, the U.S. Literary Committee, you know, what about that excites you? What what challenges do you see ahead? And, and where do you think that maybe intersects with some of these things that you've been um, uh, talking about in terms of the, the pathologies that we're sort of enduring? 
Well, I think the big challenge ahead for me is to fill Jenny Egan's shoes. She's been such an amazing <laughs> she's been such an amazing president, and you know I've 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 had the the good fortune of working closely with her over the past year and a half, and sort of observing her move through all of these uh, things in this complex moment. And I hope I can bring as much um, you know fierceness and grace and intelligence to the job as and, and to the task as she has. I mean, I think that you know one of the things that I'm really really keen on is underscoring the importance of literary discourse and literary um, conversation as a meaningful contribution to the national conversation that I think that, you know, in a time of increased polarization and stridency, you know, literature and literary conversation is almost uh, by definition, one of nuance, you know, one of emotionally valent, intellectually rigorous discourse. And I think that in it, in that way, it's a unique form of human expression that, that our organization uh, supports and celebrates, and you know, widening the gates to the to access in that community is an important uh, mission of the organization. And celebrating the accomplishments of excellence in in that form are also front and center. And and that's something that I feel strongly about, and that I hope that we can continue to do. But the organization is, of course, so much larger than that. It also is involved with a lot of advocacy on the on behalf of free expression issues, which are increasingly coming to the fore at, as, you know, flashpoints of, 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 of debate and, and, and controversy in, in our national discourse as well. So I think contributing to that and also pushing uh, this initiative to have the organization increasingly national and not just based on the coast and really to have more satellites across the country and pen across America is an org- uh, a a program that we've been involved in for a few years. So all of those things are really the things that really excite me the most. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, we're excited that you're, you're, you're taking this on and, and, and happy about it. Um, lastly, what are you reading right now? Um, well, it's, I guess kind of, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm a little embarrassed. I'm reading, um, I'm reading a biography of Augustus. I've been in, looking through the, <laughs> the Roman empire, Roman emperor's, um, life this is the third biography of Augustus that I've been reading. So I'm just sort of trying to get a very, very, uh, round portrait. Uh, it seems to me, uh, you know, not to, not to go off the deep end with pretentiousness here, but it seems <laughs> to me that we're sort of dealing with a moment that's not too dissimilar from the kind of crumbling Roman uh, Republic moment where Julius Caesar announced a kind of shift in centralization of power and that that centralization of power did was not effective and that the, the Republic, although it had crumbled enough to allow that to happen, had not crumbled enough to actually uh, uh, allow it to become a permanent uh, power structure. But it turned out that the next ruler, Augustus, was the one who who brought into, uh, who began a regime that lasted basically 200 years of centralized power and dict- what we would call a dictatorship. I worry that we're in a similar moment where uh, Trump announces a kind of, harb- Trump is a harbinger of what's to come, that we are our, our democracy is faltering and that we maybe don't have the supports to really support it through this crisis and that 2024 could actually be uh, what's ahead for us, the real, the real moment of, of existential, uh, the existential question for the American project. Yeah, absolutely. Well, four years at least until then. Um, and, and enough our, time to read a few more. Enough time to read a few more Augustus biographies. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Which I'm sure are very short. Um, Ahad Akhtar's novel Homeland Elegies is out today. Incoming president of Penn America, he joins our Penn Out Loud conversation tonight. Tickets are still on sale at Penn.org. 
Ayand, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Stephen. This weekend, some 100,000 people turned out in the streets of Minsk, part of the ongoing demonstration against the rule of longtime Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko. It comes as the government there continues to detain, hold, and torture dissidents and those who dare speak out. Our Polina Sadovskaya has been tracking developments there and joins me now. Hi, Polina. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So so hundreds of arrests over the weekend. And then last week, uh, we got news that at least three of our colleagues from Penn Belarus were detained. What do we know about them and their whereabouts? That's right, Stephen. Today is the 36th day after the uh, rigged presidential elections in Belarus, and people continue flooding the streets of Minsk and other cities demanding new fair elections, despite brutal, violent reaction by the government. So our colleagues in Minsk, uh, Secretary of Pan Belarus, poet and translator Hanna Komar, project manager, also poet and translator uh, Oladzimir Linkevich, and translator Serge Medvedev, and also, as we found out recently, journalist and laureate of Pan Belarus Awards, Nastya Zakharevich, were all detained. Uh, Nastya earlier, others on September 8th, during the protests in support of Maria Kalesnikova, the only leader of opposition who was still in Minsk. You have mm. probably heard this story of Maria's incredible bravery when uh, police caught her last week, forced her into the car and brought to the airport where she was supposed to be expelled to a neighboring Ukraine. But she had a different plan. She tore her passport to pieces, jumped out of the car and walked back towards Minsk. So. Yeah, she preferred to stay with her people even um, even in detention. Now she faces five years in prison for the illegal attempts, attempt to seize power in Belarus. But back to our colleagues, their only crime was that together with thousands of other uh, protesters, they demanded justice for Kalesnikova and other unjustly detained uh, Belarusians by peacefully walking on the streets. At some point, Belarusian Amon police forces surrounded a group of people who locked tightly in a, in a human chain, women in front to protect their men, and they were standing like this, not going anywhere. Hanna, Ulats, and Serge were somewhere inside this chain. But if you saw those videos from Belarus before, you know what a heavy ammunition Belarus police use against their unarmed people. So... Police began to snatch men from the crowd, then women to brutally detain them by dragging people on the ground. So after the uh, quote-unquote trial, all of them got a sentence in prison ranging from six to nine days, except for Serge, whose uh, fate is still unclear. And I say quote-unquote because there is no rule of law in Belarus these days. There was no information about when the trial will take place, who is the judge, what will be the sentence for what? For example, we were able to know about the exact sentence that Hannah received thanks to another girl who just got the fee, not the sentence, and uh, she told us about Hannah after uh, she was released. Hannah and Ulad spent these days in the notorious prisons in Akrestina or Jodina, 
and we only can imagine the conditions in this prison. Apparently, if uh, relatives want to leave food or medication to those arrested, you cannot do it even every day, but sometimes only once a week. So, you know, the government, as far as we understand, is attempting to quash uh, this this so-called coordination council that's formed in opposition to Lukashenko. Um, the president of Penn Belarus is is part of that group. What what has her role been? That's right. The president of Pan Belarus and Nobel Prize laureate Svetlana Alexievich is uh, indeed a member of the core group of the Coordination Council and is the only one who is not arrested or forced to flee the country yet. Lukashenko has already proved that he'll use all means to stay in power, even chasing the only living Nobel Prize winner of the country. Fortunately, last week when they were trying to threaten Svetlana by constantly ringing her doorbell, about a dozen European ambassadors came to her apartment to protect her. As she said herself to our trustee, Masha Gessen, it's a kind of resistance through presence. So I think the role of Svetlana Alexievich in the Coordination Council, and, uh, and remember she's a writer, not a politician, so I think the role is to lift the spirit of Belarusian people, to tell them we should continue defending our rights, our truth, our dignity, and I am not going anywhere. I'll be with you in, in this struggle. I think that's, that's her role, her message, and uh, I think it's incredible. Just that idea of resistance through presence. Um, I wonder for us here at PEN America, for our friends and colleagues in the United States especially, what can we be doing right now to support our friends and colleagues there? This uh, past month uh, clearly showed that neither European Union nor other democratic countries like the U.S. can or willing to provide enough urgent support for Belarusian people and their um, struggle for their rights. In fact, I strongly believe that Belarusians can peacefully overthrow the dictatorship even without this support. However, I'm in contact with my friends and colleagues in Minsk almost every day, and I know what it costs to see your lovely ones, your neighbors, uh, your people being arrested and tortured, and still continue going to the streets and peacefully demand justice. So, I mean, Stephen, it's a, it's a real emotional roller coaster that they are experiencing right now. So today they, they, they feel that they may lose hope and tomorrow they hear about another act of outstanding courage from Maria Kalesnikova or Svetlana Alexievich or their neighbor or unknown police officer who decided to resign and join the protest. So this keeps them going. And we in the United States, and we in the United States can also help them keep going by showing our solidarity, showing that we know about their struggle and admire them and believe in their eventual victory. I think our members, or literally anyone who hears us right now, uh, they can sign open letter that we have recently published, uh, open letter signed already by many of our writers. They can tweet or use any other public platform to raise people's awareness of what is going on in this small European country. Or simply read about it and, 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 and pay attention. All this counts and certainly will be seen by 
by our friends in Belarus. So I do encourage our listeners to act in solidarity with Belarus. Yeah, well, Polina Sadovskaya, thank you for keeping our attention on what's happening in Belarus. Uh, Polina's director of PEN America's Eurasia Project. Thank you so much, as always, Polina. My pleasure, Stephen. And that's our episode for Tuesday, September 15th. Join us Friday for the Pen Pod. We'll have our weekly Tough Questions segment, plus a conversation with Emily Ramshaw, co-founder of the new reporting outlet, The 19th. You can listen to all our episodes at pen.org. Follow us at Pen America on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Stephen Fee for Pen America. This is the Pen Pod. See you Friday. <laughs> <laughs>